Good morning or afternoon to you, whatever you're doing. Um, hopefully something enjoyable. I have just spent this whole morning. It's now, oh no, it's afternoon. Right. It's <laughs> it's 1.32 and I still haven't eaten because I woke up and I was keen to, um, well, start planning the next podcast, which I said last time was about attachment and reward. But, well, because I've been doing more research into it and trying to broaden my understanding, I'm getting these kind of suggestions and things on YouTube uh, with different points of information. So I clicked on a video that was like two hours long. And so I was uh, taking things out of that that I thought were most relevant to what I'm trying to do. And... Yeah, I, just, I haven't eaten, so I'm, I'm going to do this before I do anything else because I'm, I'm feeling like I'm in the groove. So, I want to start by going over a few things that I did not touch on last time about the incentive motivation system and the role of dopamine. Um, I've written these things down, so if it sounds like I'm kind of speaking or reading them, then it's kind of just to keep myself on track because I was listening to this uh, podcast with Dr. Anna um, Lemke, I think is how you pronounce her name. Uh, the last, the spelling of her last name is L-E-M-B-K-E. So I, I, I'd go with Lemke. But I was listening to her speak about addiction on the Huberman Lab podcast, which is another one that you should definitely check out. And she reminded me of a good point for anyone who's not familiar with the, the brain and, and its neurochemistry to, to any degree. But rather than dopamine being something that is only present during the reward of a goal, which we know it is, that's where it spikes, we also know that it is, it's A or the driving neurochemical factor to pursuing a goal. We know that. If you don't know that, then <laughs> check out the previous podcast. But moving forward, if food or a potential partner or a novel, which means new um, object is in the environment, then dopamine levels rise. We know that as well. Dopamine exists in animals as well. We know this. Or, at least, or maybe I didn't mention that last time, but dopamine exists in animals as well. Let's make that clear. And this rising of dopamine is what I wanted to emphasize because what is it rising from? Level zero? So the answer is no, dopamine's already, and we might say kind of pulsing at a steady rate, say when you're not moving or, or even thinking about moving. So dopamine's already there. And Anna Lemke will kind of goes into, well, is it is it all the same for people who are born? You know, are we all born with the same amount? Which the answer is no. Um, and she goes into a little bit more there that, that I'm not going to. So check it out if you're interested. Um, but continuing on with, with our journey. So dopamine is already present, but it goes up when the mind enacts towards a goal. So we know that dopamine levels can go up beyond baseline. But as I'm sure you could have guessed, they can also go down below baseline. <laughs> Interestingly, Dr. Anna Lemke said that this drop below baseline of dopamine is associated with pain. I find 
I find that point of pain, it's a curious result because it was not intuitive to me that the opposite of pursuing a goal, which is what we spoke about with dopamine, and the associated pleasure is to feel... So the opposite of that is to feel pain to some degree, if indeed these two, these are opposites. You know, maybe it is more... Maybe it's more open where, you know, pleasure sits in one place and pain in another. But, you know, also there's there's boredom, which some might say is similar to pain in that both share discomfort. But I wouldn't really say... I wouldn't really say that I feel something resembling pain in those moments where I am bored. So not sure at this stage whether, or I wasn't sure at least, I should say, at this stage whether this pleasure and, and pain um, dichotomy, well, whether it was an act, or is an actual dichotomy, whether it is that pleasure and pain are opposites or whether they just sit along a wider kind of, um, landscape, let's say. But as I think about this pleasure-pain dichotomy and as I've continued um, researching on it, it maps closely onto why I hold the core value I spoke of in the previous episode, which is that I view myself principally as as a learner. Not specifically you know, an academic learner, though obviously I do have academic interests, but more as a learner in all instances in life. So, I mean, I've always been a, a curious person, but I think this this value emerged into a more concrete and explicit form after I made some kind of some quite serious mistakes in the past with relationships and, you know, with the law and, and have behaved in, in ways that were kind of pursuant of rewards so that dopamine was was a strong presence, if that makes sense. I won't go into into exactly what those were now because, you know, what whilst I do these, I do these podcasts in a large part to kind of overcome certain types of resistance that I encounter um, within myself. So, judgments against the inclination to kind of to try and be perfect, for example, um, you know, I'm trying to overcome that, and I've not found, I haven't yet figured out exactly what this platform could be or what direction it'll kind of be most helpful. So not going to dive into all of it, but I, I will keep those there as to go back to um, to the degree that it's relevant for what we're talking about. So as I was saying, those mistakes forced me into a corner where either I would get down on myself so much that kind of self-harm or as it's called in mental health first aid courses that I instruct, um, non-suicidal self-injury, and we can explore that later, but we'll just go with self-harm for for these purposes. You know, so self-harm or or in some cases suicidal thoughts would kind of take over. And the only alternative was to recognize recognize myself as a learner. So this is to say that failed pursuits of goals that entailed excessively high levels of dopamine led to certain types of a pain response. It may sound extreme, but in my mind at the time, at least, I was either going to die physically, you know, by suicide or mentally by becoming kind of a shell of a person, or I must view myself as a learner. So obviously this was not easy because, you know, you, you can say all that you want that you've learned from your mistakes, but when you're thrust hard 
into the scolding spotlight of a you know of a person who's committed actions that the the present you does not align with then you know what can you do how can you know that you've learned it's like when you fall unexpectedly or if a you know if a ball hits you in the back of the head the following moments feel completely disorientating and is it disorientating or yeah it is disorientating not disorienting no that's not right <laughs> the following moments feel completely disorientating and sometimes highly anxiety provoking that you kind of feel like a shell like you don't know whether your body is inside or outside of you whilst you kind of struggle to collect it if that makes sense so to know yourself as a learner is to face those unknowns and the anxiety, which are basically the same thing, unknowns um, and, and anxiety, and to best accept it as a transitory experience, as something that can or will pass, even if not right now. In my case, this meant every time the judging thought arose to punish myself for the mistakes or seek you know, th those same actions that kind of got me there, I had to journey through a series of questions that would address whether I, you know, whether I actually felt bad about it, which was obviously a yes, or, you know, whether I would like to experience that suffering again, which is clearly a no, and whether I knew what I could do or practice to have control over not doing it again, and then do my best to work on, on those in that moment. I've taken this detour because... On the back end of reaching for a goal and failing, dopamine has risen and then likely dropped below baseline. That my alternatives at the time were self-harm and thoughts of uh, thoughts slash plans of suicide. And both of those inflict pain as you know physical and emotional pain are registered in the same or similar regions of the brain. I find this is interesting because as you recall, pain was what Dr. Anna Lemke mentioned occurred as the drop of dopamine below baseline in addiction. I may have this wrong, so I'm just going to ex I'm exploring here, but you know, perhaps the pain registers it, it registers on a shorter time scale where the the pain is more immediately coupled with the drop in dopamine rather than pain that is kind of expressed over the course of time, which might align more with, with what I was describing. And I've continued um, researching on this and we'll kind of get to it towards the end and hopefully it'll all kind of mold together nicely. Because, it, you know, it could be something entirely different. For example, there are many brain regions that play a role in pain and, and pain is a complex kind of topic to discuss without a, a working model. So as for brain regions, which these are not necessary to remember, but um, still perhaps interesting, there's the insula, which sits deeper than the surface of the brain and kind of stretches along the sides. And then there's the anterior cingulate cortex, which also sits deeper than the surface, but kind of more towards the middle and the front of the brain. So the insula and anterior cingulate cortex these are both active when people report that they feel pain that that try, trying to work on the right emphasis there that they feel pain so this would be kind of like a subjective report rather than say if someone were in shock from an accident um, they may not 
or, or would not report feeling pain despite displaying an injury objectively. And there was an example of this at my um, at my primary school actually. I can't remember who it was. I wouldn't say who it was anyway, but just for my own my own point. They were trying to do a, a swing off of the monkey bars and their feet got caught. Um, it was one of those where it's kind of horizontal on both sides and then and that was a long horizontal and then a shorter bar where he had his feet hanging and his hands on the other end. I'm not sure if you can imagine this, but he's let go with his hands and he's swinging with the bar behind his knees. It's about to do a flip and his feet get caught and then he just drops straight down from memory and broke his arm. And I remember watching it, or at least watching part of it, and he got up and you could see, you know, the bend in his arm, which was obviously shocking for everybody who watched it, even more so for him. And But I remember thinking, he's not crying. Like, he he, he wasn't crying. He His facial expression showed shock, but he didn't look like he was necessarily in pain. So this is kind of... Um, that example where where at that time, if he were to give a response, he may not have said, oh yeah, I'm feeling pain, though his body still is. So just to kind of give some context of the complexity of, of talking about what pain is. So it seems there's a mind pain and we could say like a body pain or uh, put more specifically, we could say a pain which the mind is or is not aware of. So in the case of shock, those in the case, bringing it back to those brain regions, the insular and anterior cingulate cortex would be less active. You know, with the the, the boy who, who went off to try to do the flip and broke his arm, his body is still registering pain, but his, his mind is not necessarily aware of it to the same degree. There's other processing that is going on. So the insular and anterior cingulate cortex would be less active um, than other instances of pain. And this would be more like, we could call it body pain, even though it's not necessarily just pain that's got to do with the body, but more just pain of which the mind is not aware of would be, a, again, a more precise way of knowing about it. Um, this could also be the, the example of body pain is otherwise known as, um, I just was reminded of this this morning, it's known as nociception for anybody who's interested in the specifics. But other regions are involved. So there's the thalamus, you know, there's the amygdala, which is involved in processing fear, the basal ganglia and the periaqueductal, blah, blah, blah. We get the point. So there are, there are lots of other kind of brain regions in there as well. But those, uh, I just catch myself um, thinking to, to make the point that those two that I mentioned, uh, those are the ones where you're explicitly aware of the pain. You're, you're consciously or subjectively, whatever word you want to use, um, aware of the pain. So as I've continued investigating, Dr. Anna Lemke actually says that pleasure and pain at the level of the brain, they overlap to a large degree of which regions process them, which is kind of interesting. We would assume then that the insular and anterior cingulate cortex are also involved in feelings of pleasure. Furthermore, the brain actually 
works to maintain homeostasis, which is kind of a fancy word for, for balance. So when we experience excess in both pleasure and pain. We learned this a little in the last episode with the Harlem Globetrotters using basketballs. And if you haven't um, heard the analogy, it might sound weird, but I tried to roughly equate this with um, neuron final, uh, neuron firing. So when addiction occurs, those neurons are pumped with dopamine that create unbalance in the brain or, or a lack of homeostasis would be the other way of saying it. If the dopamine receptors on the next neuron keep being filled, so to speak, with the quotations, then the neuron no longer needs this many dopamine receptors, so it drops them off. Oh no, we would say. You know, now the drug, food, work, shopping, relationship partner, gambling session, social media notification, you know, sex or porn is over. Now that that's over, some time has passed and the flood of dopamine has receded to a drought. You know, now the the neuron, from the perspective of the neuron, it does not have as many dopamine receptors to motivate for much else than the new kind of quotes normal. And now is where pain sets in. And interestingly, pain has a stronger presence than pleasure, um, which are for evolutionary reasons that I won't go into excessive detail about. But put simply, the body slash mind is attentive to negativity because negativity often is accompanied with threats to survival. Uh, and then everything else is kind of an uncertain bonus tip. So this isn't so much of a problem with single use or infrequent use with um, with any kind of substance or behavior um, that that could potentially be addictive. But with continued engagement with whatever that is, then this disturbance becomes a greater challenge to overcome. You know, it disrupts the neuron or neurons um, to a greater extent. This pain is often subconscious such that people re-engage with whatever the that stimulus is without knowing of the mechanisms to their discomfort. And this is again why I'm discussing the topic, you know. Now using, being able to use this information about pain, I can view those challenging experiences of, um, of self-harm and suicidal thoughts slash, you know, plans as coping mechanisms to, if not uh, very effective ones, but coping mechanisms nonetheless to deal with pain from the consequences of unhelpful sources of dopamine. And, you know, I find this to be quite encouraging and empowering because first just, well, first just knowing it is interesting but more importantly, it allows me the first point of responsibility to look after myself. And I hope it can do the same for you. So thank you very much for listening again. And I look forward to getting into uh, that next topic on, what was it again? Attachment reward. <laughs> thank you.